Morning, church. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verses 31 through 38 is our text this morning. John chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. I do invite you and remind you that as we open our Bibles and as we hear the reading of God's word, we are invited to hear and to receive the word of God. It is the inspired, authoritative word of God. God has said it. He has prescribed it. He has made it clear to us, and he has preserved it so that you and I can hear the very voice of God through the reading of his word. So please do hear and receive the word of God. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are of. I know you are offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father. And you do what you have heard from your father. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have sent your only begotten Son to tread upon the earth that he created to minister to live, to proclaim, to die, to be buried, to be raised, to ascend into heaven, be seated at your right hand where he is now. We thank you this morning for the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, it is our desire that we would more fully understand him and his truth that we would have clarity concerning what he has said in this text. And so we pray that by your spirit you would teach us this morning. We pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your instruction. Your word is truth. Sanctify us in the truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Is believing in Jesus enough? Is believing in Jesus enough? That's the question. And we may want to answer that question with an immediate yes. But before we do that, we have to understand that there are at least two underlying questions with that question. First, what is believing in Jesus? Second, 
Is believing in Jesus enough for what? Last week's passage concluded with John 8.30, and that passage says, As he, Jesus, was saying these things, many believed in him. And if the passage were to stop there, perhaps we would be led to believe that those who heard Jesus' words believed upon him, they were true disciples, and they became his followers. Yet, this week's passage indicates the exact opposite. Jesus addresses those who were said to believe in him, and he shows that their belief is insufficient. And this brings us back to our two underlying questions. What is believing in Jesus? This is certainly one of the most important questions for us to get right upon the face of the earth for eternity hangs in the balance. What is believing in Jesus? To rightly grasp the concept of belief in the gospel of John, we have to understand that John uses the verb believe 98 times in his gospel. You think belief is the theme of the gospel of John? It's clear that it is. But we have to be careful because he doesn't use it the same way every time. Context. The context of the passage, the context of the word must be the determining factor for us to identify what kind of belief he is speaking of. And as we've worked our way up to this point in the gospel, we've seen various kinds of belief. We remember in chapter 2, we observed some that believed in Jesus simply because of his miracles. The text says that Jesus did not believe in their believing, if you will. He did not entrust themselves to them, for he knew what was in man, and he understood that they simply were uh, awed by his miracles. We saw in John chapter 6 that Jesus feeds the 5,000, and many people followed after him. And Jesus says, oh, you don't search for me for the right reasons. Rather, you got your fill of the loaves. Very, in the very same text, later on, Jesus says a hard truth. He says, if you are truly my disciples, you must eat my flesh and drink of my blood. And they say, this is a hard saying. This is a hard saying. Who can swallow it? Who can receive it? And we're told that many of the disciples left. In our text, we see a kind of belief that initially receives the words of Jesus. Yet when pressed to believe in the whole Christ, all that Jesus is, all that Jesus says, all that Jesus does, this kind of belief falls short. Beloved, what is believing in Jesus? What is biblical belief in Jesus? What is the kind of belief that we are after? And very simply, it's this. The kind of belief that is necessary for you and I to understand is a belief that fully receives, that wholly trusts, and that totally rests in the person, the work, and the word of Jesus Christ. Do you hear me, saints? Do you hear me, friends? That fully trust, that wholly receives, that totally rests in the person and the work and the word of Jesus Christ. All that he is, all that he says, all that he does. We must take him 
and take all of him. That kind of belief is enough. What is it enough for? Is it enough? It is enough for you to be set free from your master. It is, it is enough for you to be set free from your master, which is sin, and your natural father, who is the devil. Is it enough for you to enter into a restored relationship with God, the Father, by Christ the Son and the Holy Spirit? True belief in Jesus is enough. And this is presented in our text this morning. You see in your outline, the main idea of this text is that Jesus shows that his words and work are the means to freedom from sin. Why? So that you might continually believe on him and walk in his word. That you might continually believe in him and walk in his word. And this text this morning is outlined in four commands, and these four commands naturally flow from the text before us. And I want us to be clear that these commands are comforts and assurance for those of us who have placed our trust in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the very same time, these commands are warnings and pleas for anyone who is outside of Christ this morning. You're going to see that you must abide in the word of Jesus. You mu- you're going to see the importance of not underestimating your natural status. You're going to be exhorted to behold the redeeming son. And lastly, you must know that your response to this Christ indicates who your true father is. So let us begin with the first command. Abide in the word of Jesus. Abide in the word of Jesus. Verses 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Oh, we've heard this verse many times, not necessarily out of John chapter 8. Pulp culture uses this notion The truth shall set you free. But so often the context of what Jesus is truly saying here is abused or dismissed altogether. These verses provide a conditional statement. It's the classic if-then condition. If one abides in Jesus' words, then there are three outcomes. The first is this, you are truly his disciple, The second is this, you will know the truth. And the third is this, and the truth will set you free. And these outcomes are predicated upon abiding in the words of Jesus. We cannot overstate the importance of abiding in the word of Jesus. So what does it mean to abide in his word? You're going to find that John loves this term. He uses it all over the place in the book of John. He uses it all over the place in 1 John. And we're going to come to it eventually where it's most concentrated in John 15. The term means to remain or to dwell. And in the context of our text this morning, remaining or persevering in the word of Jesus 
is the mark of true discipleship. It's the mark of true discipleship. In other words, a true disciple is marked by remaining in the word of Jesus. Remember, Jesus is presented as the very word of God in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Here in our text, it's the very same word for word. And so not only are his verbal words important, but we understand Jesus is the living word. And so as John writes this using the same uh, word, the idea is that you must receive Jesus' words, which are connected to his person. So many people try to divorce the word of God from the person of God. That's impossible for us to do. Jesus speaks from his nature, from his essence. What Jesus says is part of who he is. The word of Jesus should never be divorced from the person of Jesus. Genuine believers, friends, are not marked by an initial zeal for God's word that later fades. Genuine believers are not marked by submission to Christ's words only when it's convenient for them. Genuine believers are not marked by indifference to Christ's words in difficult seasons. No. Genuine believers understand that the word of Christ is connected to the person of Christ, that they abide in his word, which is made manifest in at least five ways. First is this. Abiding in the words of Jesus is obedience to the words of Jesus. Abiding is obedience. Second, we abide in the word of Christ by seeking to grow in our understanding of it. We are commanded, Peter commands us, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Third, abiding in the word of Christ. Listen to this. Have a heart-to-heart with God. Abiding in the word of Christ is marked by us finding his word increasingly precious. It's the word of God. Is the word of Christ precious to you? It's so important for us to deal with these. Fourth, abiding in the word of Christ is made manifest by ever being more controlled by it. We understand that there's a progression. We understand that there's a maturation. We understand that there's a growth process in salvation. But that growth process looks like us more fully submitting to the word of God and being controlled by the word of God, such that when the world says something to us, increasingly we say, what does God say about that? And maybe most important for our context, a fifth mark of abiding in the word of Jesus, it's manifested by submitting to it precisely when other entities oppose it. What will you do when your friends, when your employers, when your government, when your spouse, when your children, when your whatever, oppose the word of Christ? 
will you still faithfully, by God's grace, empowered by his spirit, submit to it regardless of the outcome? This is part of abiding in the word of Christ. And the warning is this, is that there are many disciples in John's gospel. We've seen them. But there are few true disciples in John's gospel. And each and every time, the true disciples are people who remain, who dwell, and who abide in the word of Jesus Christ until he comes again. This is the true mark of discipleship. And we have to just be honest with ourselves, brothers and sisters and friends. Understand that abiding in the word of Jesus is not popular. If we just accept that right now, we're going to do a whole lot better in our Christian walk. It's not popular. I can tell you how to be popular in this world. Don't abide in the word of Jesus. It'll be popular. People will like your insight. People will like your style. People will like your innovation. But you abide in the word of Jesus, you're not going to be liked by the world. You're to be in the world, but not of the world. So what I don't want us to do is abide in the word of Jesus and then just look down upon the world and hate the world. No, we minister to the world knowing that they are not going to reciprocate that. We're not going to be popular in the sight of the world. But if you know that life extends beyond this world, if you understand that this world as it now exists is not our home, if you understand that your popularity in the world goes hand in hand with slavery to the demonic forces of this world, then maybe you'll be encouraged to abide in the word of Jesus. If you abide in his word, then you are truly his disciple. And notice what Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Do you hear the promises of Jesus in this text? Abide in his word, truly be his disciples, and you will know the truth. And this isn't just some intellectual or philosophical knowledge that Jesus speaks of. What does Jesus say of himself? He says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through me. And so this knowledge of the truth connotes a relational knowledge, a true knowledge of God and a relationship with him. We already saw in the prologue in John chapter 1, verse 17, it declares that grace and truth come through who? Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 18 tells us that Jesus is the one who exegetes or expounds the Father to us. And so he makes known God the Father, and it is through him that we have relationship with the triune God. This truth that Jesus speaks of is none other than the very gospel that he came to accomplish. This is the truth. And our text is going to continue to tell us that we are opposed to God naturally, that we abhor God, that we rebel against God, and that we are deserving of the wrath of God, his holy, righteous judgment. Yet in the very same breath, we can say, but God, but God, in his grace and in his mercy and in his love, set forth his only begotten son, who came and not only died in our stead, but lived in our stead, doing everything that you are required to do, all your failures, all your flaws. Jesus was perfect, spotless, holy, through and through, 
And that is why his death is acceptable to God. Is because he is the Holy One of God who died in our stead such that you and I could receive forgiveness. He took your place on the cross if indeed you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And he shows his authority and he shows his power that after being buried, he was raised on the third day. He ascended into heaven and he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. This is the truth that Jesus lived out nearly 2,000 years ago and that for 2,000 years he has been faithful to proclaim to the world and in the power of his spirit, many people have acknowledged that this is the truth. Oh, would to God, would to God you know the truth. Because if you do, the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. Freedom in this context is none other than freedom, the freedom of salvation. By grace, through faith, in Christ alone. In other words, we could put it this way. The truth that sets you free is centered on the person, work, and word of Jesus Christ. And that freedom is inaugurated now, such that we are no longer slaves to that which we once were, but it culminates, but it culminates in the new heaven and the new earth, as Dennis alluded to, where we will be free forever in the presence of God. Do you want to experience liberating freedom in Christ? The answer to that question depends on if you understand your natural status. This brings us to our second command. Do not underestimate your natural status. Do not underestimate your natural status. Look with me at verses 33 through 35. They, the Jews that Jesus is speaking to, answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. We understand that the Jews were politically enslaved by many nations throughout its existence. They viewed themselves, though, not in a sense of political freedom, but as spiritually free, inwardly free, as a result of God's election of the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, there's a rabbi named Rabbi Akiba, and he's credited with this saying that all Israelites are sons of the king by being descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus' word in the previous verse implied what? That they were spiritually enslaved, but they reject that idea. As a matter of fact, that they were baffled by that indication, and they wondered, how can he make such an assertion? Does he not know that we are children of Abraham? And we already see in verse 33 that their response demonstrates that these so-called believers were unwilling to abide in Jesus' word. As one commentator put it, their sense of inherited privilege is so strong they can neither acknowledge their own need nor recognize the divine word 
incarnate before them. They claim that by being virtue of the offspring, they claim that by the virtue of being the offspring or the seed of Abraham, that they were already free. But this is not the case. And I think it's helpful at this point for us to just pause for a moment and to, to, to try to grapple with this notion of the seed of Abraham. If you read your Bibles faithfully, you're going to find out that this idea of the offspring or the seed of Abraham is all over the place in Scripture. As a matter of fact, in one sense, the Jews are correct. They are the seed of Abraham. And if you read passages of Scripture, you're going to find that there are wonderful blessings depicted for the nation of Israel, because they are of the seed of Abraham. Yet, this phrase is not a monolithic concept. It's not defined in one way throughout Scripture. Scripture employs at least five senses, at least five senses of the seed of Abraham. And again, context determines what the meaning is. And so there are Let's go through those five senses. There is a non-special, if you will, sense of the seed of Abraham. This is the non-special seed, the physical seed of Abraham. Who do we think of most immediately? We think of Ishmael. We think of the sons of Keturah. These are the physical, yes, the physical descendants of Abraham who are not the sons of promise. So that's one sense. But there's a special seed line a special physical seed line of Abraham, and that is what the Jews in our context are referring to. This speaks of Isaac and Jacob and the Israelites. They are the physical descendants who are the sons of promise. And when we read through our Old Testament over and over and over again, you're going to see promises made with this special seed line. But within that seed line, the physical seed line, there are believers and non-believers. There are people who are born of the special seed line of Abraham, but they reject God. But there are also those who are the special seed line who are true believers. I believe this is what Romans 9, 6 speaks of. Not all who are descended from Israel, physical Israel, belong to Israel. But there are some who are physically Jews and believe, and they still belong to Israel. We also have Christ as the in an individual sense, seed of Abraham. We see this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Christ is the seed of Abraham. He is the one through which the promises will be fulfilled. This is why we can say every promise is yes and amen in Christ. He is the seed of Abraham. And there are also spiritual sons of Abraham. There's a There is the spiritual seed of Abraham, which are all true believers in Christ. We can see this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. So we can rightly say we're children of Abraham, not physically, most of us, but spiritually. It's an accurate thing to say. We see that in Galatians 3, 29. What is the point that I'm making going through all of this seed line stuff? Well, let me tell you. The point is that physical descent does not warrant a right relationship with God. Physical descent does not warrant a right relationship with God. Simply being a physical descendant of Abraham does not mean that you have the faith of Abraham. Abraham believed God in what? It was counted to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. 
Yet not all of the special physical seed line of Abraham believed God. Why? How? Well, if they would truly believe God, then they would believe the Son of God and taking him at his word. And Jesus makes this clear when he says, no longer by implication, but explicitly, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's bad news. You're a slave to sin. The Greek says, everyone who does sin is a slave to sin. This is why it's so important for us not to underestimate our natural status. Because you've all committed sin. Slavery is not defined by a person's seed, but it's defined by a person's sin. One commentator put it this way, Jesus demands his, his opponents define their freedom not only by means of their relation to God, but also by means of their relation to sin. In this way, while the Jewish people are distinct from the world according to their Abrahamic nature, they are identical to the world according to their human nature. They too are enslaved to sin. And this is the, the struggle. This is the fight. This is the wrestling match. Why? Because everything in us tries to tell us that some way, somehow, we're all right. We try really hard. We're better than those people over there. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm working on it. Well, I'm better than I was last year. Blah, 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 blah. Jesus says everyone who does sin is a slave to sin. And it's good and right for us to accept that. Because why? It's the truth. And the truth will set you free. Do not, do not underestimate your natural status. You're a sinner. You're a slave to that sin. And just to be really clear, what is sin? Let's just simply define it. Simply put, it's rebellion against God in one's words, thoughts, and deeds. And it's not rebellion as we define rebellion. It's rebellion as God defines rebellion. And what does he say? He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. There are many kinds of bondages in this world. But let me tell you the worst kind of bondage. It's being in bondage to sin. Slavery to sin is vicious. It is unrelenting. It is moral failure, failure against the God, the very God who made us. It is shameful self-centeredness. It is enslaving evil devoted to what? Created things at the experience of true worship of our creator. It is our natural state. And therefore, Jesus gives a striking analogy. 
He says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Well, those who opposed Jesus believed that their status as sons of God granted them entrance into the household of God. Jesus says no. He says, in reality, you are slaves of sin that can be handed away at any moment. In the Gospel of John, the word son is never used of believers. We see that in Pauline language, that we are sons of God. But the term son is always reserved for Jesus in the gospel, while believers are called children of God. And so therefore, the picture that is set before us in this analogy helps us to rightly identify that Jesus is the son who remains in the house forever. Now, friend, only if you do not underestimate your natural status as a sinner, as a slave to sin, will this next verse offer you any help? Or put it in the positive, if you rightly acknowledge that you are a slave to sin, then this next verse offers, offers you help. We need a redeemer, and that redeemer is the son who remains in the house forever. This brings us to our third command. Behold the redeeming son. So clear, so simple, so beautiful. Look at verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free. Let's put an exclamation point at the end of it. Indeed. How glorious. If we rightly grasp what was said before this verse, then we ought to fall in worship of this verse that we are slaves to sin. Yet the Son has the ability, the power, the authority to set us free such that he says you will be free indeed. There is certainty. We don't have to scratch our heads. Well, I think maybe I'm set free. Well, one shot. No, we're free indeed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. You're a wretched sinner who is offered redemption by a wonderful Savior. It's that simple. This son is the son of God, none other than Jesus. John 3.35 has already told us what? That the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. And the fact that the son is of the same essence and has the same authority as the father emphasizes the fact that the son has the ability and the authority to set you captives free. Praise the Lord. I love what D.A. Carson says. He says, Jesus not only enjoys inalienable rights as the unique son of God, but exercises for full authority, vested in him by the Father to liberate slaves. Those whom Jesus liberates from the tyranny of sin are really free. True freedom is not, hear me now, True freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. And it is genuine liberty, because doing what we ought now pleases us. This is the magnificent work of God in the heart of a sinner. The things that we once hated, 
God, namely, becomes the very thing that we love such that we want to live for him and we want to die for him and we want to do all things for the glory of him. I'll tell you what I was never convicted of before I was a believer. My sin. I didn't care. Maybe if I got caught, I'd care about getting caught. But the Lord reaches down in the power of the Holy Spirit and he changes a heart, a heart of stone into a heart of flesh that you care about the things that you say and the things that you think and the things that you do. You're convicted when you do things that dishonor God. That's freedom. It's not easy freedom, but it's progressive freedom that we care about the things that we should care about for the very first time in our lives. This freedom is an offer to rightly relate to God, to rightly relate to yourself, and to rightly relate to others for the very first time. And this is the work of the Son. Notice the emphasis on the Son in verse 36. If the Son, He is the actor, He is the one who is doing the setting free. This freedom is a progressive outworking, day by day, moment by moment, But don't lose heart, Christian. It is a certain freedom. It is a sure freedom. It is a freedom that starts now and is everlasting into eternity when we'll be perfected. Such that we can say, sin is not my master. I am not my master. Satan is not my master. For I experience the freedom in Christ that turns slaves into sons who are everlastingly members of the household of God. Praise the Lord. If you're in Christ, these are the realities that you need to dwell on more. Because from such realities, they are the platform from which we dive into the pool of increasing faithfulness by God's grace and his power. We think about the reality of our position in Christ. We dwell on the promises that he gives us, and then we move forward living more and more faithfully to him. And so the question then is if we are to abide in the word of Christ, if we are to not underestimate our natural status, if we are to behold the redeeming son, the last question And the last command is how will we respond to this son? And you need to know that your response to Christ indicates who your true father is. How you respond to Christ indicates who your true father is. Look at verses 37 and 38. Jesus says, I know that you are of the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do not, and you do what you have heard from your father. So Jesus, after he clarifies the definition, their definition of freedom, he's now circling back to this idea of the seed of Abraham. And it's fascinating what Jesus can do with very few words. In the same breath, Jesus can acknowledge the uniqueness of the Jewish people in the plan of God and yet identify them as slaves to sin. 
In the same way, he acknowledges that they are born of Abraham and yet still need to be born again. On one hand, they are said to believe in Jesus. But on the other hand, Jesus says that they seek to kill him. Why? Because his word finds no place in them. Because his word finds no place in them. This again highlights that true disciples abide in the word of Jesus. It is easy to believe in Jesus when you only hear palatable truths. It's easy. God loves me? God sent his son to pay for my sins? I'm in. That was me for I don't know how many years. But what about the hard truths? What about the things that cut right to the heart? Jesus told you that you are a slave to sin apart from him. So what now will you do? And the ironic insanity of our text is that the physical seed of Abraham was seeking to kill the ultimate seed of Abraham because his word was not in them. Why? For they were not the spiritual seed of Abraham. Jesus reminds his opponents that he speaks what he has seen with his father. Remember, Jesus already said back in verse 29 of this chapter, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. There is not anything that Jesus ever did that did not please his father. He emphatically say, says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. But the sharp distinction is between Jesus, who is associated with the father with a capital F, and his opposers, who are associated with their father with a lowercase f. Later in verse 44, Jesus will plainly say it. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is the takeaway for us. Your response to Jesus indicates if God is your father or if Satan is your father. It's that simple. Who is your father? I want to encourage all of us because that's a hard truth to swallow. But the fact of the matter is this. We were all once children of Satan. We were all once children of the devil. But there is a father who is greater than he who adopts children who were once of the devil and makes them his own by grace through faith in Christ. And that's the glorious hope that we all have. The vast majority of you may be walking with the Lord. Or there may be some of you in here, outside, online, I don't know, who know not God. So hear these words. Why not today be your adoption day? Why not? 
for you, abide in his words. You're truly his disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In this text, Jesus has shown that his words and work are the means to freedom from sin so that you might continually believe on him and walk by his word. And in conclusion, I simply want to highlight the importance of Jesus' word in this text. In verse 31, he says, If you abide in my word. In verse 34, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, showing that his words are authoritative. In verse 37, he says, My word finds no place in you. In verse 38, he says, I speak of what I have seen with my Father. Beloved, if you want a deeper, more satisfying, more sanctifying walk with the Lord, do not divorce your life from the word of Jesus, which God has graciously preserved for us in Scripture. Sounds too simple, right? I promise you it is that simple. When you dive into the word of God, you are communing with God himself. You are hearing, you are reading the very words of God himself. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. When we abide in the word, we flourish, and when we abandon the word, we flounder. So what shall we do? I pray that God would make us an ever-increasing word-centered people, that we would read the word, that we would pray the word, that we would teach the word, that we would preach the word, that we'd memorize the word, that we'd meditate on the word, that we'd talk about the word, that we'd read books about the word. By any means necessary, saints, hear me, abide in his word. For if you abide in his word, you are truly his disciples. You will know the truth. And the truth, O oh Lord, the truth will set you free. Father, help us. Help us to hear the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to not take for granted the word of Christ. Or there are so many saints for so many years who didn't even have their own personal Bible, who labored hard at memorization so that they could grasp you and understand you. And here we have multiple Bibles in our homes, the very word of Christ contained in them, help us to ever increasingly abide in your word, that we would find it precious, that it would be a great desire for us by morning and by noon and by night that we would hear and desire to apply the word of Christ. Lord, we understand that this is the work that you do in us. We understand that there are some of us who we do love the word, Lord, but our prayer is not simply that we would love the word. It's that you would help us to love the word ever increasingly, Lord. Help us to see it for what it truly is. Help us not to think of it as just some old book that doesn't have any application to our day of life. Help us to view it as the very source of our authority, that what you say, we say, that what you command, we abide by. Help us, O oh Lord. Especially in a day and age in, when, in, where, in which your word is increasingly mocked. 
will be called many, many things if we stand upon the truth of your word. But the most important thing that we'll be called is truly your disciple. Give us perspective as we seek to please you. We're frail, we're weak, we're but dust. Yet he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Stir us up by your spirit for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.